listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Playful, intense, processy. Sky McClay is a composer, oboist, and installation artist originally from Minnesota, currently wrapping up her DMA at Columbia University and living in Chicago. Her works have been performed by the International Contemporary Ensemble, Yarnwire, Wet Ink, Dal Niente, and the DeCapo Chamber Players, and her piece for the Lexington Symphony was the winner of the 2013 Leo Kaplan Award, the top prize in the ASCAP Morton Gould Young Composers Awards. In 2015, her installation of inflatable harmonica-playing robots, called Harmonobots, received the Ruth Anderson Prize. She has been commissioned by the New York Virtuoso Singers, Chamber Music America, and the Jerome Fund. Her string quartet, Many Many Cadences, recorded on Spectral Quartet's Grammy-nominated album, also received an ASCAP award. Thanks for thanks for officially being on the podcast. You your music has already been on the podcast once before. Um, we uh, Andrew Martin Smith and Evan Williams and I had a really good time discussing your many many cadences piece. That was that's a that's a really fun piece. Thank you. Yeah, we. Uh, but I want to start off by trying to answer a question that we like we're talking about during that podcast and I said well I'm gonna have her on in a couple of weeks I might as well just ask her instead of us going over and over this um so we were talking about how in the middle section of your piece basically there's there's the a section where you're going like lightning fast through all these uh, cadential progressions where you get the sense of um function but you don't necessarily you're not in any one place long enough to get to really feel that oh that was a cadence so you've, you've sped up the cadence so fast that we're, we're not hearing it as such anymore but in the a section you gave us a harmonic analysis on the score and then in the middle section when that a section material kind of comes back you didn't so we were we were going over it for quite a while why did why was that you know i th- am thinking back to my to the score and i I am wondering, like, I thought I did put some, uh, some, there was some there, like at important moments, but, um, I think the, the main reason is it's a lot more centered in one key, I guess it's Uh E minor. And, um, it's, so I, I didn't think the harmonic analysis would be so useful to the performers because I was kind of the uh-huh. reason that I put it in there. It's sort of to be transparent about the compositional process and it's kind of fun to see in the score as if you're just studying the score, but also uh-huh. I wanted it to be a quick reference for the performers to be like, oh, here's the, uh, you know, what we're going for harmonically. Whereas in the B section, since it didn't change so much, it, it, it obviously like was really abstractified and stretched out but it was all sort of in one key within that so i guess that's why i didn't put the harmonic analysis in that section okay there's the answer we have figured it out inquiring nerds wanted (laughs) to know um (laughs) so now that we have that let's uh let's use it to smoothly transition to your first piece uh that we're going to talk about which is micro variations and this has uh this piece is for kind of a chamber orchestra but it has some kind of similarities with many many cadences so so what are those similarities well i wrote many many cadences first and then i started thinking i'd like to explore these ideas and materials in uh, a larger ensemble context and with more different colors and also with more uh, microtonal explorations. And I actually used a lot of the same, um, the same, well, in order to get the chord progressions in many, many cadences, I went through a, um, a very formulaic process where I took sort of a a flow chart of tonal chord progressions that is actually on like I think the Benward and Soccer theory book and uh uh-huh. I just uh worked backwards from that and exhaustively found all of the two chord progressions all of the three chord progressions all of the four chord progressions and um uh-huh. worked backwards to seven chord progressions I think and then 
So I'd already done all that work to find this sort of banal, uh, neutral, cadency material, at least in the context of my pieces. So then I thought, well, I can, I'm going to use that again in micro variations. So that's the way that it sort of connects to many, many cadences is just exploring some similar ideas and also using literally some of the same um, materials and similar sort of rhythmic language in certain, in the kind of recurring motives. And mm-hmm. so then I, um, instead of, so many, many cadences has these gestures that start really high and go kind of cascade down to the lowest register. And so with, with micro variations, I wanted to sort of do the opposite and within each variation, um, s- usually start with like the rumbliest, lowest, uh, instruments and then sort of like spectrally build up into much more uh-huh. like, uh, um, saturated spectra. So you're starting off usually with like timpani, bassoon, trombone, those, those kind of rumbles. Yeah. Um, so this, the, and this piece kind of has a bit of a program to it, although it's not, I, I don't think you would ever term it programmatic music, but there, there definitely is a story, um, that you're kind of projecting into music. So what, what was that? Well, I, uh, I thought about, about like before everyone agreed on what frequency is a, or for example, which people still of course don't agree with what, right. <laughs> what frequency is a certain note. But, um, it's, I think this is kind of harkening back to, uh, because that was more because of technological limitations and, uh, lack of globalization rather than sort of conscious, uh, choice. So, um, so it's just kind of playing on this idea that there were, uh, different ensembles playing, um, common practice period music, but at different tuning levels. And there's like this musicologist who went out and tried to, uh, figure out what pitch people were tuning to. And it was just really different depending on where he went across continental Europe. And, um, so it's this, you, you absolutely don't need to like know this story to appreciate the piece, but it's, it, mm-hmm. it's just sort of yeah. something I was thinking about was like a, a sped up, um, kind of fast forward journey of what it would sound like to hear, uh, hear these pieces like in fast motion in all these different places where they're like a quarter tone lower over here and then a quarter tone higher over here. So you're basically taking uh, common practice pieces and then reducing them down to their, you know, the barest skeleton of, of the piece, almost, you know, almost like a Schenker reduction. Exactly. Is that, is that pretty much what you did? Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. I, uh, definitely think of a Schenker reduction as like a metaphor for what I'm doing. And, and, and it's sort of a, uh, poking fun at the idea that you can reduce, uh, something so complex into like this, uh, skeletal form. Obviously like that's not really what Schenkerian analysis is about, but I'm, um, taking that idea to the logical extreme. Now, did you, was this just kind of an abstraction of what you, of what you heard or did you actually take pieces and then reduce them? It's much more of an abstraction of what I heard. I, or it's, okay. I didn't literally do a Shanker analysis of any piece and reduce it to the most skeletal yeah. form. Because I, you know, when, when I was like reading through this and listening to this, I just had this, I just had this idea of of um, of how this this particular might have come about, and I it was just this vision of like you surrounded by old theory papers and old analysis, and it was like, damn it, I need to use this for something. Otherwise, <laughs> what the hell was it all for? You know, something like that. But okay, that's not what happened. <laughs> I still like to think that's what happened, though. Yeah, I mean, I of course I drew from all of my past theory papers yeah. in a in a more life experience uh sense right and um i mean just as on on the um the over drinks podcast that andrew and evan and i did andrew said that the many many cadences like makes his list of you know pieces that i wish i would have written you know and i think this piece for me is one that kind of i wish i would have written you know, taking the, taking those reductions and, but for me, I would, I, I think I would really want to, um, 
take actual pieces mm-hmm. and reduce them. You know, it, it's kind of like it's the next logical step to what Barrio was doing with the Sinfonia, you know, like post post modernism or something, you know. Well, you should do that. I I think. Yeah, I think there's a lot of. Well, at first I was thinking like, oh, I'm probably not going to work with this sort of idea anymore. But now, actually, after sort of revising uh, micro variations, I have more ideas and and. I think that's one way to go with it. So you should do that. I should do that. We can. Okay. We can, we can all do it (laughs) (laughs) because I think, I mean, especially composers who go through the entire academic regimen, you know, you're all all the way through doctorate. You have so much experience just analyzing and analyzing and analyzing. And at some point you have to think, well, why am, I mean, you could, obviously you can make the argument that analysis provides, you know, greater understanding of the piece, but Ultimately, you're left with just this stuff that you can't do anything with. And as you know, to theorists, that might be something that is useful to them. But I think for composers, you know, we need material to create with. And if you're not ultimately, if you're not doing something that works into the creative act, at least for me, it feels not meaningless, but it just feels like know i i, I want to use this somehow so i think i i think this idea is really cool yeah well i thank you and i think that uh you know i agree that i get a lot of inspiration from analyzing pieces in a sort of mysterious un unexplainable way and and maybe this mm-hmm. is a way to make uh like what you're talking about sort of literally collaging or incorporating uh some sort of Hmm. some sort of transformation of other pieces is like Mm -hmm. a possibly very artistically fruitful place to look so right yeah so uh who are we going to hear on this recording the it's um the ensemble of the smcq which stands for the um i'm sorry my french is horrible but it's something like the mine too (laughs) society de musique de montreal contemporary music society of montreal um Okay. And with uh, um, Walter Boudreaux com- conducting. And how did you get connected with that ensemble? Well, I uh, first wrote this piece for Le Nouvel Ensemble Modern, which is another uh, ensemble in Montreal. And I was part of the um, NEM Forum, which is a, a program that Le Nouvel Ensemble Modern has where you, uh, the selected composers, uh, live in Montreal for a while and um, work with the ensemble and it's just like uh, in it's associated with the University of Montreal we do a bunch of stuff there and it was a really great program and um, so I did that in November of 2016 and awesome. then I I wasn't like super happy with the piece from a compositional perspective uh, and I was thinking well um I'll probably never get a chance to do this, but I'd like to revise it. And then just kind of out of the blue, uh, Walter uh, emailed me and he said that he wanted to program the piece. Well, he was at the concert uh, in, in November and he wanted to program the piece with the SMCQ in uh, basically this September. And so I was like super happy to get a second chance at it. And I said like, well, right. can I revise the piece? And he was fine with that. So then I revised it this summer and made it a little more um, aligned with my vision of what I was trying to do and didn't quite like achieve the first mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Revision for me has always been a, a, a bit of a tricky prospect just because it seems, I, I think for a long time, I've always been working on the notion like, well, I'm not happy with this. Okay. I'll, I'll fix it in the next piece. You know, it's always like, uh, should I really spend more creative time on on this thing that I'm not so happy with, or should I just kind of let it go away? And I actually have a couple of pieces like that now that I'm struggling with that that um, kind of idea. Do I actually spend the time and go back, or just do I just take what I learned and apply it to the next thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I personally, if I get a chance to revise a piece, I consider that like a golden opportunity, and I definitely go for it because. Mm-hmm. I'm al- almost always 
happier with the the second revision because or the the second version because um I usually have sort of like a platonic ideal of what I'm like trying to get at in a piece and um like for example with micro variations the so it's all sort of orchestrated around this idea that the winds are all tuned a quarter tone lower than the strings and in the first version I had a lot of sort of big sections where the strings would play something and then the winds would play sort of the same thing right after and I, and you were supposed mm-hmm. to sort of be able to hear the difference in the tuning but you really it, it was not very salient you couldn't really hear the difference I found when I actually heard it and then also mm-hmm. I kind of um, had a lot of like back and forth between sort of big choirs and um, I was hoping to have these microtonal clashes be be like audible but because I orchestrated it with big choirs it was like too chorusy and you couldn't actually hear the um the microtonal differences it was just like right. too many people so I ended up like thinning out the orchestration a lot and I'm that was something that I just didn't realize until I heard it and um then and I also made the piece a bit shorter I just added I kind of added more flourishes and tried to like make it a bit more, um, well, I make it like more variation, a little less repetitive. And so I, I'm uh-huh. very, uh, in, in, in that case anyway, I think re- revision was important for that piece and what I learned from it. I'll also use in the future, but I was right, glad yeah. to <laughs> get another chance at it. Um, I mean, one of your adjectives is process C, and when you were revising it, did, was the initial piece that you wrote more centered around process and then your revision kind of kind of uh, chipped away at that process? Yeah, I was definitely more free uh, in the revision. Like in the first version, mm-hmm. I um, was a bit more systematic, but then I realized that that led to a more uh, pedantic boring yeah. form so i went more uh free in the revision yeah it's i mean it's it's amazing how how often that mm-hmm. happens like you're you're tied to the to the ideal of of the piece and it just ends up kind of falling flat anyway well i'm glad that you did have the chance to revise it because i i think it's a really effective piece so right now we're going to listen to it and it's called micro variations Thank you. 
So now I want to move on to your piece, uh, Doppelganger 3. And, um, you know, we were talking about uh, micro micro variations or microtone, microtonal variations. And this is a piece where you really, really focus on it. Uh, it's for two oboes and a uh, port of organ. And you're really playing with the... Uh, well, you're playing with multiphonics, and we here at Adjective New Music are huge fans of multiphonics. And this piece is kind of a tour de force for oboe multiphonics. So, what kind of what's happening with the multiphonics in this piece? Well, I play oboe, so I and I'm playing on this recording, so I um, have a very personal knowledge of of oboe multiphonics, and I. Uh, actually started writing this piece just for well so it's doppelganger three there are three sort of versions of it one version is uh for two oboes and um chamber ensemble one version is two oboes and uh accordion and this one is two oboes and organ and you can actually um it's this recording is with a portative organ but it has also been played with like a big church organ which is really awesome too but i just didn't get like a super good recording of that performance um when I started writing the first version, it was just for one oboist, and I had, I came up with these multiphonics just improvising and playing the ones that felt really fluid to me and that uh, had sort of um, fluid uh, transitions between them and, and also that had sort of melodious qualities that I was able to mm-hmm. kind of build um build melodies and patterns with them and so I was playing all playing this solo part with my teacher um Michelle Vigneault at the University of Memphis we were it was I was writing it for her and then we just started playing the part like together at the same time at my lesson and that was such a huge revelation because once I heard the multiphonics that we were playing in unison like we were playing we were fingering the exact same things right. but the just because of the natural differences in our oboes we it it doesn't sound like this like we're playing in unison it's like this very uh amplified fusion of um of like similar frequencies and interferences and stuff but it's like really intense and just um adds all these like slightly unpredictable layers to the sound. And so then I was like, oh my God, this piece is definitely now for two oboes <laughs> playing in like uh, in unison. multiphonic unison. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of, uh, you know, experiments that you can do with like wavetable synthesis, you know, where you get a, a complex pattern of beats across the whole spectrum by just making things, you know, a couple cents different. And then you get that, you know, this kind of cascading of all the, um, of all the partials or, you know, each partial coming in and out was, um, was that something that was, I mean, it it seemed like maybe this was kind of a fluke in the, in the lesson, just, just by virtue of having, you know, lessons where often you will play with your teacher in unison, just like kind of this do what I do kind of thing. So was, was that electronic training in there at all um i definitely relate the sound to ring modulation and just yeah those very Mm -hmm. small the the amazing sorts of interference and uh things that you get when you're playing with with synthesis uh so i totally hear that connection and that um but I think as far as like discovering what would happen with this piece, I wasn't really thinking of that at first. But right. in retrospect, mm-hmm. it sounds that that is what I'm thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds good, right? <laughs> so you said you had three different versions of like the accompaniment part for this. So with organ, organ terrifies me. I really have to say, like it, it seems like the most unwieldy of beasts. So had you written for it before? Like what, what was, what, why organ, I guess? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I thought that I I always have thought oboe and organ sound really great together and you can do, especially with this piece, you can do like really perfect sort of 
uh, like square wave blends mm -hmm. and and um, it was in 2014 that I wrote this piece and so I um, just had a I was just invited to um, have a piece at this sort of like composition reunion at Luther College where I went to college and so my teacher was like yeah what kind of what piece do you want to program and I knew that my friend who was actually my uh, my piano teacher when I was like in middle school taught organ at Luther now and um, mm -hmm. and I really I just had this idea like oh this piece would be awesome with with organ because I'd done the accordion version before and that was like that version is I think fine but I wanted like more uh I just thought it would work a little better with organ like I could do sort of mm -hmm. almost the same thing but um but uh with more sort of lows and more like um well the other thing you do in this piece with the organ is you're able to change the timbre mm -hmm. right yeah by you know pull, pulling out stops or or whatever and that that's kind of stuff is in obviously instructions in the score and that's kind of you know going back to my kind of synthesis comments the organ seems like it's the slightly more technological but still analog answer to the kind of multiphonic synthesis you're getting from the from the oboes you know just in terms of like really being able to play with timbre in this piece yeah yeah and that's another reason exactly why it was an attractive idea and then I wrote, so writing for the portative organ was like, it's like the training wheels organ kind of for a composer because it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't have so many options right. for stops and timbres. It just has like a few options. And then as, and then when I, I revise, so I've revised this piece like a lot of times in different versions mm -hmm. because I think it's, it's like such a, a solid idea that I want it to be, um, playable in sort of different ways and different formats. And, um, yeah, the, so then uh, Dave Broom is um, an awesome organist and composer, and he was doing a recital at um, St. Paul's Chapel at Columbia. So I uh, re like re-revised it for the big organ there, which was really just more options because like there's so many stops on that organ. And like then I, I took some of the um, sort of bass lines and put them in the pedals, and that it was really... Um, Mm -hmm. really low and like that I think it worked really well in the space it was like really intense but yeah sadly our, our performance wasn't like the best so I think this is sort of a better performance <laughs> yeah and who who is on this performance who you're performing with um I'm performing with Kaya Sand on oboe and Brad Schultz on the organ okay so this is Doppelganger 3 <laughs>
Cool. So let's move on to your uh, your final piece called uh, Glossolalia. Mm-hmm. This is this is a piece for voice and piano. So who is the poet uh, for this uh, for this work? The poet is someone named Gregory Maurer, and he is I think he lives in California. And the way that we were connected was um, so this piece was commissioned by. Voices Up at Fordham University, which is a poetry prize that um, is re- given to, I think, two books of poetry every year. So and then they get a publishing contract through Fordham University Press. Mm. So mm-hmm. they also do sort of a musical event along with the to connect with the poetry. So they uh, asked me to pick a poem basically from his book or this other the other winning poets book and uh, set the text. And so as I read his work, I really, um, this poem really spoke to me. It was very musical and, uh, also economical in the number of words. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, so yeah, I just thought this is the one. Uh, What is, uh, what is the poetry kind of talking about? What is the theme? Well, the entire book is called, uh, something like um, a provisional map of a lost continent. So there are a lot of poems about uh, imaginary um, sort of pre-colonial places and cultures. And um, mm-hmm. I think this poem is, well, glossolalia is like a religious singing in tongues or speaking in tongues. So mm-hmm. it's, um, I think of it as a very, like sensual poem that is just dealing a lot with with onomatopoeia with uh malapropisms which means like you're trying to say a phrase like a common phrase like um and you say kind of like the wrong word so in this in glossalia for example um underword it's like underword instead of underworld or um Mm -hmm. i know there are more but i can't think of them right now but the so anyway i think it's just about like speaking in tongues and uh, sounding kind of like a stream of consciousness of like all these weird images. Mm-hmm. And you you talked about in the notes for this piece kind of a three-step process of deconstructive stretching. So can you un- unpack that a bit? Sure. So I repeat the poem three times and the first time... I just sort of wrote a melody to go with the poem and it's a very uh, sort of leapy um, melody that that uh, to me it, it it's very it, it it makes it makes sense after you hear it a few times or like it's, it's a melody that mm-hmm. you could maybe sing back but not after the first time you hear it so right, I right, definitely yeah. want to use it more than once so uh-huh. I um, there's sort of the f- fast first run and then the second time I put a lot of uh like scales in between certain uh I stretched out certain syllables and put scales in between them and Mm -hmm. um then so I sort of have the same uh bench posts or benchmarks of the melody of the pitches of the melody on the certain same syllables but there's just more space between certain syllables with with scales filling them Mm -hmm. in and then the third time 
uh, the those what were scales become glissandi and right. the um and they become like very intense sort of leading tones that are supposed to be like really tense and you and uh, create these sort of microtonal clashes with the piano and are mm-hmm. very you know satisfying when you finally finally get to the syllable that you're getting to and then you wrote this for uh who'd you well who'd you write this for i wrote it for lucy de gray mm-hmm. and and how did you get, get connected with her was she part of that uh voices up program yeah she was part of the voices up concert so um and I've, I've also known lucy for a while before that just from uh living in new york and being in mm-hmm. the scene and i've always you know really loved her and thought she's awesome so i was really excited to write a write a song for her is that who we're hearing on the recording actually no the i mean lucy's sung it lots of times and um and i have good recordings of her too but then i also happen to have this nice recording of uh sharon harms and myla um i was gonna say myla kunis but that's not, <laughs> not her um. she plays piano too wow she's she has a lot <laughs> yeah um sorry myla i'm blanking on her last name um but uh yeah so they're playing at this um concert that i had at spectrum last october and that, that just out of the recordings that i have is a really nice recording so sharon has sung it too yeah it's, i mean it, it's very close it's very intimate mm-hmm. you know as as that space kind of is mm-hmm. um but yeah cool all right so we're gonna listen to glossolalia and by the way that that's myla henry on piano i remembered earlier her name Ah, Myla Henry. We got it. Way to go, Myla. Thank you. 
So uh, we've come to the point uh, in the podcast where I asked the same question to all the composers that I have on, and that's how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Well, ever since I was a kid, I really loved music, and I also felt a very sort of natural creative impulse, and I've always uh, done things like made, uh, you know, made visual art, made um video projects with my friends and um I when I was in college I w- I started out as a a music education major and I um I definitely you know liked that but then when I took composition class uh I that just really clicked with me and I th- I mm-hmm. felt um that all this sort of all these like creative ideas I had just had to had to like become they had to go pieces. somewhere yeah and um and so yeah I was really um really into my composition class and I started you know started taking lessons and talked to my teacher had like a serious you know life plan talk and uh, <laughs> this was uh Brooke Joyce at Luther College who's a really amazing composition teacher and composer and um and I because I was concerned, like, oh, is it, like, impractical to be a composer, you know, compared to being a, a music teacher? And, um, yeah. And, and uh, he just said that, like, by closing, by not being a music education major, you're kind of, like, closing one door of uh, being certified to teach at public schools. But if you are a composition major, you're opening a lot of other doors that uh, could include you know, being a music educator in lots of different ways. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was really wise for me. I, then I was like, okay, I'm going to be a composer now and just ran with it from there. And it's, it's like, it just really feels right. It feels like something that I'm kind of like destined to do in a way. And Mm -hmm. so I, I think, um, who knows where my, life and career will go but so far it's going going well for me and and i'm very lucky and i mean i i have uh some strong career momentum right now that i'm very um so it's very rewarding to be a composer in my life at this moment yeah i had i had that exact same thing i was also a music education major and i had those conversations with like well especially with my parents you know are you ever going to get a job and that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's always tough because they, they hear the word composer and it's like, oh, I'm going to be an artist or I'm going to be this or that, which, you know, typically has, I'm going to be a philosopher, you know, I'll go get one of those jobs down at the philosophy factory. <laughs> like, so they always, they always hear composer and they're like, oh, you know, yeah, uh- but you can do it. I mean, so, so many of us are, are obviously proving that, you know? Yeah, and and my parents were actually very supportive. I think um they I was kind of like nervous when I was telling them I was changing my major, but they were totally uh yeah, just supportive and said like, "Oh, that sounds cool." I mean, they <laughs> they I guess could tell that it was something I was really into and that um they right. knew I would make it work. Yeah. Well, uh, before we go, can you tell everyone where people can find you and connect with you online? Sure. Uh, you can find tons of my music on my website, www.skymcclay.com, and you can also find it on SoundCloud, and you can also connect with me on Facebook. And uh, yeah, email me, and I also have like a list of my events on my website, so if you can come to any of them, I'll see you there. Awesome. Thanks, Guy, for doing this. Well, thanks so much for interviewing me. Great to talk to you, Rob. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.